Well, good morning, Be Free. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That is who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we do it. And today is the last Sunday of 2020. Uh, we are fully back online because of this coronavirus pandemic, and we are still trying to figure out what it looks like for us to walk together through this season uh, as, a, as a church. Uh, and that's a hard question to answer right now. In fact, things at church look so different than they usually do that I've been having a certain conversation with people quite, quite a bit through this season uh, that I think a lot of us are probably asking. And the question is, what exactly does it mean to be the church? What is a church? What does a church do? What must a church do in order to be called a church? What role does gathering play in who we are? What about singing? What about preaching? What about taking communion? What makes a church a church and what does a church do? And the thing is, it's a hard question to answer now, but I actually think it's always a hard question to answer. What makes a church a church? What makes that question so incredibly hard is actually the fact that when you look at the Bible, the Bible seems to have a lot of different kinds of answers to that question. Let me give you an example of what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 2 in Revelation 21, the church is called God's people. 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 3, we are called the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians 5, we are called the bride of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 5, we are called members of his body. 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So what is the church? Are we a people? Are we a temple? Are we the bride? Are we a body? Are we a race, a priesthood, a nation? What are we? Biblically, what are we? What is a church? What does a church do? And what are we as the church called to accomplish in our time here on earth? That is a darn good question. And it's a question that's made increasingly hard because the Bible seems to answer that question from a different angle every time it tries to answer it. And so what we're going to do starting next week, January 3rd, is we're going to start a brand new series. And though this series is on a book of the Bible, which will look at a lot of different things, one of the main things that this book of the Bible is going to help us answer is that very question. What is the church? Next week, we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Acts. And I am so excited uh, to dive into the book of Acts together as a church, looking at the history of the church. You see, because we're calling this sermon series, Acts, the church and its mission. The church and its mission. Because I think this series is going to give us a chance to think a little bit more about who the church is. And to think a little bit more about what we are called to do as the church in our time here on earth. So we're going to start that series next week, January 3rd, right here, Facebook Live, 930 I want to encourage you, uh, we're going to be going through this entire book, the book of Acts. So if you found these journals to be helpful in the past, I want to encourage you to get one again uh, for the book of Acts this time. Uh, you can find a link over here in the description box to pick up one of these journals just on Amazon. We'd usually have them for you in the back, but seeing it's online, uh, every man for himself. But I would encourage you to grab one. They're really helpful as we walk through a book of the Bible together. 
But today what we're doing is we're laying a foundation for these, this series by looking specifically at one way that the Bible talks about the church. I think at Be Free, this might be our favorite way <laughs> to talk about and answer the question, what a church is. Because it's a way that we find right in the middle of our mission statement. Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, looking at the church as a family. What does it mean that the church is a family? So I'm going to read this passage for us, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to pray. Join me, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'll put it up on the screen, but I encourage you to have your Bibles open in front of you. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Be free, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Um, just one of a several passages in the Bible that helps us understand what it means to be in your family, to be your son, to be adopted into your family. Father, there, the truth here is, is so deep and so beautiful, it's hard uh, to truly fathom. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help unpack it for us. Um, open our eyes and our ears to understand uh, the things that are here. Give me clear speech. And Father, I just want to pray that if I say anything in my sermon today that is not true, that is not of you, uh, that it would pass in one ear and out the other. I pray, Lord, that people would not remember anything I say that is not true. But Father, if I say anything that is true, that is from you, that we need to hear, we pray that we would hold it tight. That it would change the way that we think, the way that we live, the way we treat one another. And so, Father, we give you this time. We ask you to work now through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine a rich businessman. And this rich businessman, he's a real rags to riches story. He didn't grow up with much, but he worked hard in school. He did well in college. Uh, and then getting out of college, he started a business. And his business did well. In fact, his business did very well. He worked hard. And this business grew and grew and grew. And it grew into an amazing, massive empire. So that after a number of years, this, fought, this man, this businessman, he was wealthy and he was powerful. Now let's imagine that this businessman had a son. And this son would one day inherit the family fortune. Uh, he would also inherit his father's business. And he would inherit with that role all of his father's wealth and all of his father's power. But not yet. 
Because this son is still a, a boy. This son is still seven years old. So imagine this wealthy and powerful man brings his young son into the office with him one day. And the son goes over to his father's assistant's desk and he sees a little bowl of candy and he looks into the bowl and he sees that in the bowl are those little, uh, you know, the kind, those little strawberry candies with the jelly in the center. Those were never the candies I wanted to see when I went into a waiting room. Uh, so the son, he looks into the bowl, he sees those little strawberry candies with the jelly in the middle and he's mad and he yells at his father's assistant, you're fired. What would happen? If the son yelled, you're fired at the, at the dad's secretary. Probably not much. Because even though this son, this heir to the, the company, would one day have wealth, <laughs> would one day have power, at this point in his life, he doesn't have any power. At this point in his life, he could go into this company, but he would have no more power than the summer intern. He can't fire anybody. He has no teeth there. That's kind of what we see right here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul paints a picture for us. Let me read these first two verses for us. 4 verse 1 and 2, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, Paul is kind of painting a, a picture for us similar to the picture I just painted a moment ago, only in the ancient world, in an ancient house. He's talking about a young heir of a family estate, that one day he'd be the master of that house, the master of that estate. Everything that that father owned would one day be his, but not yet. Not yet, because right now he is powerless in his own house. Right now, he's under the control of guardians. And until the fullness of time comes, until the date set by his father, he will still be powerless in his own house. And this picture, it's, it's a word picture for us. Paul is illustrating something for us. And so in the next couple of verses, Paul is going to unpack what he's trying to show us with this illustration. Let me, let me read it for you, starting in verses 3 through 5. In the same way... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now you might know a little bit about the story of what's going on in the church in Galatia. Galatia is not a town. Galatia is actually a region right in the middle of Turkey. And in the church in Galatia, it had a, it had a big problem. Because in Galatia, there were teachers who were teaching the people of that church that they had to follow the Old Testament law. Even though they were Christians, they still had to continue to follow the law that the Jews followed. And this is something that Paul taught them wasn't true. This is something that Paul actually comes at them hard about in this book. Let me read what he says at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul says to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? <laughs> 
Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is saying to them, guys, you think you need to follow the Jewish law? Guys, you were saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not the law. Did you forget that? Paul is coming at them hard here. And later on in this chapter, Paul goes on and works hard to try to explain to them what the purpose of the Old Testament law actually was. And so I'm going to read a couple of verses here, and I want you to listen closely. Pay attention to if there's anything here that sounds familiar to something we might have read before. Something in chapter 4. Paul explains, verse 24, The law was the guardian, there's that word, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the Old Testament law was a good thing. It guided, it protected, it guarded the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, for a long period of time. You know, just like the young heir had guardians to watch over him until the right time, the law was the guardian of the people of Israel until the right time. But then in verse 40, 25 and 26, we read, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You see, Paul's explaining in chapter 3, yes, you were under the law. And that was a good thing. It was a guardian for you. It protected you at this time that you needed to be protected. But now you are in Christ and you don't need a babysitter anymore. And that's what Paul is saying when we get back into chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. So let's go back to chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, and, and you'll see what I mean. I'll read it. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So now, like the young heir was kept under the watchful control of the guardian, and the Jews were kept under the watchful control of the law, so now here it seems that all people are kept under the watchful control, even, it uses the word here, slavery, of the elemental principles of this world. That's a hard word exactly to translate, to understand what Paul's getting at here, but it, basically what Paul's saying is that all people are controlled by the structures, systems, and traditions of this world. In other words, just how this world works. But it's not the way it works anymore. In fact, it's not the way it needs to work anymore. Because even though all people are enslaved by sin in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. His son's name is Jesus. Jesus came and he lived under the law. And Jesus, unlike any other person who ever lived, he perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus is the pure and the blameless son of God. Now here's the amazing part. When we put our faith in him, in Jesus, we, by faith, are united with him. And if then, all of a sudden, in him, his purity becomes our purity. His perfection is reckoned unto us. His sonship, 
becomes our sonship, redeeming us from our slavery to sin and death. Now we are in Christ. We don't need a babysitter anymore. So that now by faith in his finished work on the cross, we are free from the guardianship of this world. We are free, no longer enslaved to its regulations. And our, our relationship with God is no longer mediated by a law. It's mediated by a person. Our relationship with God, it's no longer as a slave. It's as a son. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I think that in the church, we tend to talk most often in, in terms of Christ's work for us on our account on the cross. We tend to think most often about our justification, most often about the fact that he forgives us, that he washes away our sin, leaves us white as snow, and that is good. Of course we think about that. Of course we should worship him for that and meditate upon that and rejoice in that and on and on. But I think that I read, when I read these passages that talk about our adoption, I just think, you know, it's one thing to be set free from our sin. It's another thing entirely to be adopted. Yes, Christ set us free from our sin, but he also adopted us. I want you to imagine a teenage orphan, maybe a, a kid of 16, 15. He commits a crime and he comes before the bench of a judge. It would be one thing for that judge to look on him with mercy and to pardon him for his crime, this crime that he's guilty, thing, guilty of. But it would be another thing entirely for that judge to look down on that 15-year-old orphan and say, you know what, son, why don't you come home with me? Why don't you take my name? Why don't you live in my house? Why don't you sit at my table? It's one thing for us as traitors against the king of heaven to be forgiven. For us as rebels against the throne of heaven to be pardoned. To have our guilt shoved down a garbage disposal, but it's another thing entirely for him, the God of heaven, to make us a part of his family. To sit at his table. To allow us to call him Father. To be forgiven of our sins, be free, is unspeakable joy. But to then be loved by the one that we most offended is another thing entirely. But be free, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about adoption. The fact that God not only forgives us, that he not only saves us from sin, pardons us, makes us righteous in his eyes, but he loves us. Loves us like a father loves a son. This is what J.I. Packer writes about this idea, this truth of God's adoption. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. And this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. 
be free, here's what that means for us. Here's what the, the reality of adoption means for those of us who believe in Christ, who have put our trust in him. It means that we are loved by our Father and that we have nothing to prove. It means that his love for us, it's not fluid. It's not on a sliding scale. We did not earn his love by our works, and so we therefore cannot lose his love by our bad works. Any more than I love my, my, my daughter more when she is good or lose love for her when she's bad. That's not how it works. That's not how a father Son, father, daughter, love works. We did nothing to earn it. We could do nothing to lose it. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to earn. What our Father wants for us is for us to cry out to Him with spirit-empowered, dependent delight. Abba, Father, Daddy. You are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter of the King. So our first answer to the question, what is the church or who is the church might be this. The church are the people God loves. The church is his sons and his daughters redeemed by the blood of the son and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. But here's the other thing about the doctrine of adoption, this truth that we have been adopted by God himself. It's that I'm not the only person that's been adopted. If you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and his work on the cross in your place, then you also have been adopted. And if I have been adopted by God and you have been adopted by God, if I can call God Father and you can call God Father, then I can call you brother. And you can call me brother. I can call you sister. What it means is that if I am adopted and you are adopted, then we are family. And we're not talking about family here in some over-sentimentalized sense. What we're talking about is a true spiritual union, a true spiritual reality. That we were born into the same spiritual family, not from the same mother's womb, but by the same second birth. That we share in a true spiritual blood, blood bond, not by the blood that runs in our veins, but by the blood that has washed us clean. And so now, like family, we work to cultivate intimacy, love, community with one another. But not just for the sake of intimacy, but also taking responsibility for one another. Just like you with a true brother or a sister, seeing them out in the cold would not leave them there, but take the responsibility for their good, for their growth. And so be free. This is who the church is. This might be another answer to the question, what is the church? The church is a true spiritual family, a family of people from across the ages, from every tribe, tongue, and language who have been adopted and united under the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. So be free, rejoice in the love that your Father has for you, and rejoice in the family that He has adopted you into.